Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Roth, and I'll be your host today. And I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of the seminary, as we go into our first spring edition of the Faith and Practice segment. I know many of you have been waiting to get your questions answered, and so we're really excited to be here, and we're excited that you are tuning in. Dr. Piper, would you open us in a word of prayer? Great, Zach. Thank you. Let me just introduce to you all Zach. Zach, uh, as of January 1st, is our Director of Advancement and Admissions, and we're very pleased to have him working with us. And as part of his job description, at least for the time being, he's going to be hosting the podcast. Realize that we missed one month on faith and practice. We'll try to get caught up in the next uh, couple of times. We might throw in an extra one if we did one time in the past. So keep your questions coming, and we will get to them. We've got some great questions today and for the next podcast already. Also, at the conference, uh, it's not too late to come or to register and come. You can register at the door. But on Tuesday and Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, the podcast will be simulcast. And I believe that you can go to the seminary website, Artist Sermon Audio, and uh, follow live uh, the video casting or, or the live sermon. All right, let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, you who are the fountain of all wisdom, who has given us Christ, the treasure chest of wisdom, the Spirit as our mentor, and the book, your, your word as the depository of wisdom, we ask that now Christ would speak to us, the Spirit will illumine our understanding, that these questions and their answers will be done in a way that will help us all to profit from your word, that you will be honored and glorified. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. P., our first question, without further ado, comes from Tom of New Hampshire. And the question regards every member ministry, and Tom's drawing on Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. So for context, before I read the question, I'll just read the verses here. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And our brother asks us, what is your interpretation of Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, relative to the so-called every member ministry position or teaching? Are the verses speaking of the gifts given by Christ, that is, the apostles, pastors, and teachers, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, and thus, as a result of that ministry, edifying the body of Christ? Or is it speaking of these same office bearers, perfecting the saints, doing the work of the ministry, and edifying the body of Christ with each clause being a fundamental aspect of their peculiar calling? And Tom goes on to clarify his question some more, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Tom. It's an interpretive question, and there's really three different ways to take these verses, and they all have to do with where different manuscripts place the comma, or different editors place the comma. So you're uh, following the authorized version, which would use three commas, 
And so we've got these three things that are, in fact, the purpose and product of uh, the pastor-teacher. The Most of the modern translations will use either one or no commas. The New American Standard uh, has uh, one comma right after... Um, so some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, comma, to the building up of the body of Christ. Whereas the authorized version has for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of service, comma, to the building up of the body of Christ. I took a little time and looked at the various arguments for the placement of the commas. I don't have a settled position on it. I think that either way truth is being taught, which you yourself admit in your question. I don't think there's anything contrary to the confession of faith. The confession of faith in chapter 26, chapter on communion of saints, says that being united to one another in love, the saints, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. It's very interesting that our Westminster fathers understood the importance of body life long before Ray Stedman wrote his book on body life. I think that the gifts listed, for example, in Romans chapter 12, every person in the congregation is going to have, outside the gift of preaching, one of those gifts. I believe that the minister must have all seven, the elders must have six, and the deacons must have at least three of those gifts. And so people in the congregation are to exercise their gifts for the mutual edification of the church. <clears throat> I do think as you want to, it's important to guard the fact that there is the chief means of grace is the grace of ministry and particularly the grace of the word and the ordained ministry and the interpretation that you are favoring, I believe, most fully um, reinforces that concept. But other passages of Scripture do. <clears throat> That's why I say I don't think it matters uh, which way one uh, takes it. It really is a matter of probably uninspired punctuations and... As long as we're teaching truth, then any of the punctuations would be uh, biblically acceptable. We just pray for the best uh, best way to put the text together. Thanks, Dr. P. Moving on to our next question from Reverend George Lacey of <coughs> Providence PCA in Beeville, Texas. And Reverend Lacey is referencing... Here in his question, Romans 7, 14 through 25, and this is where Paul discusses the conflict of two natures, culminating in verse 25, where he writes, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And in discussing this passage with someone during a Bible study, Reverend Lacey uh, says that the, his, his partner here in the Bible study made the claim that Paul was unconverted at this point. And he disagreed with him on that and points to the chronology of Paul's conversion along with other language that he uses in Acts and Romans. 
But he's asking you, Dr. P, could you give some explanation of Paul's state in Romans 7? And then secondly, how would you engage with the broader issue of Christian perfectionism? Thank you, and thank you, George. Appreciate the question. I agree with you. The majority of uh, sound commentators take this to be Paul as a converted man, describing here with some hyperbole, which Paul will use in order to make points at times, the struggle of the Christian life. As he would talk about it, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, the spirit lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. There is a warfare. John Murray, in his excellent book, Principles of Conduct, talks about this warfare that is, is going on in the Christian life. So Paul is epitomizing the warfare by describing what's an experience of any of us, and it is that which I ought to do, I don't do, and that which I do ought not to do. It's not that he was living in, in the practice of sin, but he's just talking about that daily struggle. So maybe I'm even wrong to use the word hyperbole. It's the daily struggle of the Christian life that we all experience. And John says in 1 John 1, if you say you're not experiencing the struggle, you're calling God a liar. Not one of us is without sin. And the struggle goes on. We think that as we mature, the Spirit's work in us enables us more and more to die to sin and grow in conformity to the image of Christ. But we will never in this life be without the struggle. A useful, in fact, the more we grow, the more aware we are of the inner and deeper hidden sins. And the illustration is a man's been out in the field and he's coming back into the house and he's looking at himself under the dusky light and he doesn't look too dirty. And he gets to the back light of the house and he says, oh, I got, I got a little bit of mud on me. And he comes into the mudroom in the full light and he sees that he's covered with mud. The, the newer, younger we are in the Christian faith, the farther we are from Christ, so to speak, the less we see of our sin. The more we grow in communion, the closer we come to Christ, the more <clears throat> of our uh, sin and defilement we see. It's not the outward things at this point. We're talking about the sins of the heart. And the more one grows, the more is aware of those sins of the heart. And surely those are the sins that Paul <clears throat> is describing. In terms of a person who would claim to be sinless, uh, you've got to begin by defining what they mean by sin. Uh, anybody that makes that claim redefines sin to be willful uh, breaking of the law of love or willful breaking of uh, Scripture. But James, for example, says in James 4 that any acts of omission are sin. And Paul talks about, the, as I said, the flesh lusting against the spirit. Now, Dr. Morton Smith, our founder, has a very good discussion in his two-volume Systematic Theology on uh, volume two on higher life views, different views that teach uh, uh, some way for a person to live a sinless life. The uh, <clears throat> John Owen, and I believe you can get an abridged form of Mortification of the Flesh, is a very useful book. Pryor's Holiness, J.C. Ryle's Holiness, uh, these are good books that get to the issue as well. Mm -hmm. And thank you for the question. That is an important issue. 
And in, in my own in my own life, in my reading of Romans, I've wrestled with that. Dr. Piper's answer here is very helpful. <clears throat> and the pointing us to a couple key resources is also helpful. Uh, I would highly recommend that if you're interested in Dr. Smith's systematic, you contact us here at the seminary. We have a number of those sets here available in the Presbyterian bookstore. And then, of course, for anything John Owen, we recommend the Banner of Truth. And anyone who submits a question to the podcast, in case there are any new listeners, you get a $10 gift certificate to the Banner of Truth. And, of course, um, we police that and guard our relationship with them pretty carefully. So if you're you're hitting us with 10 questions a podcast, you're not going to get $100 worth of the banner every month. But we encourage you to take advantage of that partnership we have with the banner to get good, solid, reformed resources into your hands. And now I'm going to move on to the next question, which comes from a good friend of the seminaries, River LaBelle. And he's asking, he actually has two questions this month. We might not get to his second, but his first one here has to do with personality systems. And what he means here are things like Myers-Briggs, Fascination Advantage, The Disc, The Enneagram, and Bank, the uh, last of which he's trained on. He says that they've been eminently helpful to him in understanding himself and in empathizing with others. That may be true for some of you as well, some of our other listeners. But he also sees two temptations with these systems. One is to categorically avoid certain activities, that God might be calling us to, that require behavior that is in our weakness, according to whatever the personality type is that's indicated by these diagnostic tools. And then the other temptation is to see some sinful tendencies in ourselves or in others, such as pleasure-seeking, manipulation, and so on, as somewhat natural and therefore excusable, given the personality type of the person. And this is wrong as well, of course. And his question, therefore, is do you see any place for personality systems in helping us to live godly lives? And if so, how? Thank you, River. I'm going to say no. (laughs) Because you distinguished. You've talked about how you have found that as a salesman, the personality systems that you've studied have helped you. And I, I can't argue with that, although I will say that as you yourself warn against manipulation, we need to be careful that we don't resort to the manipulation of a personality in order to get somebody to buy our product. And the illustrations you give, I think, could move that direction. I, I do find that in personal relationships, for example, one of the things you mentioned, I remember J.R. Uh, or John uh, Bettler doing a thing on this, uh, that the way people feel loved, some want to be told and hugged and are are very physical. Um, Others want you to do for them. So they want you, if it's a woman, she wants you to be sure you picked up dirty clothes and you pick up after yourself and you're doing the things around the house that she wants done. That's very important in marriage relationships that we understand that we have, that we express and receive love in different ways. You don't need a personality test to work that out. You simply need to start understanding each other. But again, if somebody wanted to use those at that level, I think it's, I can't say it's a sin, but is it a help in living godly lives? No, in my opinion. And I could be wrong, but my problem is the very thing you addressed. Uh, 
these personality systems look at everything in terms of personality rather than as indwelling sin and the law of God. And I know, and I even know seminaries that are doing exactly what you're talking, at least the, the men preparing for ministry are doing exactly what you're talking about. Uh, they are rationalizing their behavior on the basis of their personality. You take this thing when you enter the seminary, you take it through. Actually, some people even recommend uh, that a prospective pastor in a congregation take the thing and know if they're a good fit. I don't find any of that uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, we have qualifications for the minister. We must strive for all of those. We'll, we'll be different personalities. We don't try to change the parts of our personalities that are not sinful and it's good to recognize whether a person is quiet or, or uh, more outgoing or whatever. But, for example, you use the example of the uh, boisterous person. Well, I think Proverbs would say something about the boisterous person. And it's not simply that my personality, I'm loud, boisterous. Uh, no, I've got to let my speech and outward behavior be uh, governed more by, by the Spirit of Christ. So it might help. It's a common revelation thing that might help in uh, certain relationship problems. It might help salesmen at least understand themselves um, and the types of people with whom uh, they'll be dealing. But if it comes to the pursuit of sanctification, and that's really the brunt of your question, I really don't see uh, helpfulness there. I'd be glad for listeners to get back on that one. You can discuss that some more. Yeah, it's definitely a interesting. It's an interesting topic, and um, you're right. There's a lot of ministries that use personality tests to evaluate potential missionaries or church planters. <clears throat> and um, like anything else, it, it, if you're going to use a tool like that, you just need to recognize its limitations. And as soon as it becomes the end all, be all, and the rule for you know evaluations of godliness or something, it's going to be become an issue, because then it's competing with our only rule for faith and practice, which is the Word of God. So moving on to our next question, this is another another perennial issue in the church today. The question is from Jacob Dwyer of Houston, Texas, and it's with regards to John 8 and Mark 16. And he, sa- he writes in, my question is regarding the proper use of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, In John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, those of you who who are thinking, why why this combination of chapters or passages, uh, these two passages are frequently designated as passages with a a, um, contested textual basis. In the New American Standard Translation of the Bible, which Dr. Pipe and I both use, you'll see these passages are marked with brackets. It's because they don't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts that the critical text uses uh, to, to determine the text of the New Testament. But Jacob's question is, should these two passages be relied on for doctrine, preaching, and teaching by the church? Or should these passages be kept out of the category of inerrant scripture and placed alongside other texts as simply historical and contextual, like the Apocrypha and the Didache? Dr. Piper, what do you say? All right. Good question, Jacob. The important uh, thing to note when we have passages like these two is they don't teach anything that's not other places in the Scripture. 
And so uh, there's no problem here of inerrancy in terms of what they're teaching, whereas Apocryphal or Didache would have biblical truth in them, they also would have error. There's no error anywhere in either of these two passages. Also, nobody's faith is to be shaken by the fact that we have some textual differences. We realize that there was no printing press. So all of the New Testament texts were copied by hand and oftentimes by men who did not even know Greek. So they were looking at the Greek text. Sometimes it might, they would mess up a, a vowel. Sometimes there'd be note in the, in the parenthesis uh, and in the margin that they would pull into uh, the text. And so we have families of text. And these families of text, the, the scholars say that we now have every 999 out of 1,000 words as they were in the original. So the discrepancies are minor. That's the first thing I want to get across. Second, or what I've already said, is that there's nothing in either one of these passages. The ones along any of, of Mark with Christ commissioning the apostles and promising them um, that they will withstand the powers of Satan. The other is the woman taken in adultery. Nothing in these passages that is not uh, absolutely true mm-hmm. and stated other places in Scripture. Now, what I tell the students is that if you're going to preach it, you need to have some basic conviction that it's in the text. Because you're wanting to... Our, our, our motto, you probably saw it on the, the website and the... Uh, tweet is that when the authorized man of God proclaims the word of God, Christ speaks with a living voice. So it's important we have confidence that we are preaching that which is in the text. But we'll have differences of opinion on that. I believe both of them are there, and so I would preach them. And really the modern translations, they, I'm glad they include them. They do put them in brackets, but they're there. So it's really up to a minister to decide. But if, if one decides not to use it, one needs to make the congregation very clear that this is an inexact uh, science, that everything in these verses is true, and this in a way questions the authority of Scripture. Amen. Thanks, Dr. P. Moving on, we have two questions from one of our students here at the seminary, Melwin Isaac. And Melwin must be doing a study through Acts because both the questions deal with Acts chapter 21 and specifically um, this issue that of Paul going to Jerusalem. And so if, if, you, if you're listening live or even if you're listening by the recording, I invite you to open up Acts chapter 21. Uh, and your copy of God's Word, because we're going to spend some time there. But just for sake of references, in case you're driving and you can't do that, the verses in question are Acts 21, verses 4 and 11, and then 22, 18, and 21, and this is how they read. Um, The author, Luke, writes, After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And moving to verse 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. We jump over to chapter 22, starting at verse 18. And I saw him, this is Paul saying, I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then verse 21, and he, being Jesus, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
Okay, Melvin. Uh, in, the, in the first instance, chapter 21, uh, the Holy Spirit merely revealed to Paul and the church that he was going to be captured in Rome. It was the Christian friends, people in the congregation, that urged him not to go. It was not God urging him not to go. If you go over to Romans 15, you will see he was compelled to go because he was bringing an offering from the Gentile church to the mother church in Jerusalem. It was going to express the very uh, unity of the church. So Paul was convinced that he had to go, knowing that he would be arrested. Now we understand in God's providence that the very arresting of Paul was what got him access to a whole segment of Roman culture that if he'd gone there as a free man, he would never have had access to. Your second passage, you're simply misreading it, Melvin. You've got to notice that Paul has given his testimony here, and he's talking about the first time he went to Jerusalem. And he was preaching, and that's when God told him to uh, make haste and to leave. It's not when he was there uh, after uh, he'd been warned by the Holy Spirit he was going to be imprisoned. So uh, Paul in no way uh, disobeyed the revelation from God. And yes, God's decree is it was God's will in this last situation, as I've already said, that Paul be arrested get to bear testimony to governors and kings, as Christ said he would do there in uh, Palestine, and then go and bear testimony uh, to the uh, Praetorian Guard and many in Caesar's household. And plus, we have the wonderful epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. More than likely, Paul wrote all of them while imprisoned in Rome. Mm-hmm. And then there's another question here from Melwin on Acts 21. I'm not going to read the passage in question, but he asks, Why were Paul and other Christians in Jerusalem keeping the ceremonial laws as per Acts 21, verses 21 to 26, when it was not required as per Acts 15? Were there two sets of laws for two different groups, one for ethnic Jewish Christians and another for Gentile Christians? Thank you, Melwin. No, there weren't. What was going on in the intermediate period between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, so a little less than 40 years, was the, uh, the Gentiles and the Jews alone had, came into union with Christ only uh, by faith. The Gentiles, for the peace of the church, were encouraged for a period of time not only to observe the moral law, but not to offend the Jews by eating meat with blood or offered to idols. That begins to change even when you read Paul's later epistles. He talks about the meat that would be offered in the uh, uh, pagan temple. Don't go to the temple and eat it, but if it's sold in the marketplace, it's fine to eat it. Uh, And so the, the early church was laying down some rules of wisdom for how the church would maintain unity in this period. Jewish Christians, like Paul, in the intermediate period, could observe uh, some of the uh, Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul did this, as he says in Corinthians, to be all things to all men. So he did, uh, in the intermediate period, observe some of the laws. But nobody could make those required upon others. That's how we understand Romans 14, Colossians 2, Galatians 
uh, with respect to laws of food and days. Uh, that's not talking about the, the first day Sabbath. It's talking about the ceremonial Sabbath. So people in the, in the intermediate period could observe those. They could not require those of others. When the temple was destroyed, that was the end of all of that. And so these people today who call themselves Messianic Jews and are observing old Jewish customs, I think are absolutely wrong. Uh, all of those things were all connected to the temple. When the temple was destroyed, they also were fully abrogated. Very good. Melwin, thank you for those questions. I hope that helps you in your study of Acts. And uh, Melwin had emailed me a little bit earlier today just to make sure we got those questions. So if he's not listening now, hopefully he'll get these in time for whatever he's working on. Now, the next question comes from Paul Gale of Sheridan, Wyoming. And this is, uh, we're shifting gears here, but this question deals with praying for our <coughs> leaders. And this is this is a fascinating issue. I'm looking forward to hearing Dr. Pipe on this one. A pastor I respect has suggested that I should still pray for our former president who just left office January 20th. He's talking about Barack Obama, in case you've been living under a rock. In uh, Wyoming. <laughs> Since he is no, yeah, and since he is no longer the leader of our country, nor involved officially with our government anymore, why should I continue to pray for him? Thank you, Paul. Because you love your neighbor. Barack Obama, uh, from all appearances, is unconverted, and we should pray for his conversion, for the Clintons, for anybody who showed a, a lawless attitude toward God, toward the church. <laughs> in things they've said and done. I don't think the church in corporate worship is not required to pray for him in the way that we should be praying for our current uh, rulers from the local through the federal level. That's something that we must do, but any Christian is surely free. And if you love your neighbor and you would want to see this man and his family converted, then that's what you should be praying for uh, is for his conversion. Absolutely. And in, in today's political culture and political environment where things, tensions are so heightened, it is best to, and profitable spiritually for our sanctification, to pray for those for whom we have maybe more uh, negative thoughts than usual, than other folks. So as much as the Lord brings Barack Obama to mind, it would be beneficial to you to, to even say a quick prayer uh, for him and for his conversion, as Dr. Piper has said. Now, back to uh, theology proper. We have a question here dealing with Christ's humiliation. And the question's from a regular listener who's uh, remaining anonymous. Is Christ's incarnation and conception part of his humiliation? And he references Westminster Larger Catechism, question 47, which says, How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? And the answer in our catechism, as Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that, being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. And this particular listener is reading through Abrakel, or at least is aware of Abrakel's um, argument here in the Christian's Reasonable Service, and makes a citation there where he seems to differ and this is again from the Christian's Reasonable Service in Volume 1, Christ, prior to his incarnation, was not yet God-man. Therefore, he could not be humbled as such. According to his divine nature, this humiliation, properly speaking, could not take place. Furthermore, the union of the divine and human natures will continue in his state of glory, yes, to all eternity. Thus, the incarnation itself 
without these humiliating circumstances, which should not be considered here at all, was not a humiliation. It was rather a qualifying of his person, enabling him to be mediator. Thank you for the question and the Abraco quotation. I had hoped to get back to the print copy and look that up, and I, I did not do so. The great majority of the Reformed opinion is that which is stated, though, in the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that Christ, in his divine, as the divine being, when he entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary and took to himself a human nature, that was an act of humbling himself. Is that not what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that it was humbling to become uh, a man? We might want to read that passage. Verse 6, we'll start with 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're getting a theological truth here to enforce personal humility, who although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Now, the emptying himself means that he um, didn't empty himself of his uh, divine attributes, but he made himself of, of uh, low estate. And part of that was taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So I think Paul answers the question, and what we have in the larger catechism is simply the outworking of what uh, Paul writes there in um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. <clears throat> and I'm looking to see, in fact, if that is a proof text that is uh, given for uh, 47. No, it's not. But uh, Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. In John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Mm. Getting to the uh, incarnation. But the low estate and the fact that he took to himself a human nature, I think, was an act of personal humbling. Now, the... Greek Orthodox say there was no humiliation at all involved in this because even if man had not sinned, God the Son would have become incarnate. But we also reject that as not scriptural. This incarnation of Christ to save his people from his sin was part of God's eternal plan of redemption. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's helpful to study these things and study them diligently and to know our God insofar as he has revealed himself to us. And our next question comes from Adam Harris. Again, shifting gears a little bit, his question deals with the extent of confessional subscription in the local church. He asks, should we require church members to subscribe to our confessional standards? If yes, what implications does this have for our doctrine of the church? If no, how should we deal with baptistic-minded members with young children? Thank you, Adam. The churches in the Dutch Reformed tradition require confession to their three standards by all, subscription to the three standards by all of their members which means that you have to be not just evangelical and accept the Bible as the word of God and the Trinity and such but you have to believe in the doctrines of grace you have to believe in infant baptism <coughs> excuse me the historic Presbyterian position 
In contrast, beautifully articulated by Samuel Miller, mm-hmm. it's what he called the liberality of Presbyterianism. Whereas we requires Presbyterians a credible profession of faith. So that means there would be a broader doctrinal apostle creed foundation of faith with clear uh, confession of Christ and evidence of a life that is being uh, affected by the indwelling Holy Spirit. I prefer the Presbyterian approach because it fits in with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and in 2 Timothy chapter 2 with respect to giving people room to grow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Membership subscription is requiring a degree of Christian maturity that many of us didn't just come to overnight. It was a a good many years after I was converted as a teenager that I really uh, rejected certain um, presentations of the gospel, that I really began to understand election, particularly redemption, and then uh, covenant baptism. Mm-hmm. And that was all part of my sanctifying, a God-sanctifying work in my life. So I think that we should um, <clears throat> allow people that room. Now, we see a person into our church who would not hold to our confessional distinctives. We do so with the provisions. Let's take Adam's question Baptistic-minded members with young children. <clears throat> what we explain to these people is they may never publicly or privately in any way teach against the church's position. They must not absent themselves from any baptisms of covenant children. And they must be prepared to study the issue periodically as the elders will give them things to read and encourage them on home visits. If people submit in that manner then they can come in and have room to grow. Now, such a man could not serve as an office bearer. Mm-hmm. In Presbyterianism, <coughs> supposedly, um, the officers then will subscribe to the standards of the church. They must believe these things. Nor could the person uh, teach publicly against them, but he could teach another class then that would not uh, in any way contradict the standards. And you're not saying that somebody a Baptistic-minded member with a young child who refuses to have that child baptized should then be disciplined? Oh, no. You said come as members of the church. Yeah. They'd only be disciplined if they broke those provisions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to our next question comes from Brazil, Belo Horizonte, and it's uh, from Eduardo Barbie of, of Belo Horizonte. He says, Can we repent of original sin? Thank you, Bello. Yes, we can. We need to understand what we mean by original sin. <clears throat> if we go to the Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraph 5, this corruption of nature. Let me back up. <coughs> we receive the guilt of Adam's first sin, the corruption of our nature, and all actual transgressions which proceed from it. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Mm -hmm. So I think what we have here is that no, we don't repent of the guilt of Adam's first sin. But we are born guilty. 
because of that sin. But because we're born guilty of that sin, we then have the lack of communion with God and the want of original righteousness or the corruption of our nature, and that is something that we should confess. We are born with a corrupt nature. We still have a corrupt nature as unregenerate men and women, and <clears throat> it and all of the motions thereof are truly and properly sinned. So if the corrupt nature is truly sin, then it's something that we should be confessing. Amen. And that was from um, Westminster. Oh, Eduardo, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was for Eduardo. And No, no, you were fine. I was saying your answer was drawn principally from the Confession of Faith. Um, paragraph, uh, chapter 6. Chapter 6, paragraph... 4, 5, and 6. Uh, 4, 5, and 6. And I know that <laughs> I'm going through Dr. Piper's reading plan for the standards this year. If you are, if you started on January 1st through Dr. T's... Just did it. Uh, reading plan. We were just uh, we were just in that chapter of the confession. So thank you for the question, Eduardo. Just so you know, we have about eight minutes left in our program. I think that might leave us to answer uh, at least this next question and maybe a little bit more before we wrap up. <clears throat> so this question comes from Isaac Overton of Geelong, Australia. And Isaac asks about divorce and remarriage. He says, should we infer from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, that those who remarry following an unlawful divorce are living in an adulterous relationship? If the answer is yes, then would that further mean that these unlawful remarriages need to be annulled in order for those involved to truly repent? Thank you, Isaac. No, it's not what it means. There are those that would say that's what it means. Um, adultery is not the unpardonable sin. A second marriage is not the unpardonable sin. They're committing adultery. <clears throat> if they're living in that relationship independently, then they're living in adultery. But God would not have them commit another sin uh, because of sin. If, in terms of repentance, if they truly repent, they do not annul their marriage, but rather they go back to their uh, previous spouses and children and ask their confession, uh, repent, uh, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And that's really all you can do to make restitution. So please forgive me. I did sin against you in this divorce as a wife, as children. And if they're asking this of Christians, then that forgiveness should be granted. And then the second relationship uh, becomes a good and godly marriage. And there'd be nothing second class about it. So since you've put it in the context of believers, then I, it's, for me the question is a lot easier to answer that when believers repent uh, and make proper restitution, the marriage is in a proper marriage. Mm -hmm. Which means and I've discussed this before on faith and practice, that a man in that marriage would not be disqualified from being uh, an office bearer in the church as long as the church knew of the previous marriage and his current marriage met all the godly requirements of Scripture. Amen. Good question. Very good question. Very relevant to today. Isaac will be with us next year in the fall for a, a semester coming up from Australia to study. Yeah, I thought I'd recognize his name. Looking forward to meeting you, Isaac. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, but these next questions from Anonymous on preparation for pastoral ministry, I want us to tackle these um, even, even briefly, because I think they can handle brief answers. These are three questions that are all somewhat related. They all deal with preparing for pastoral ministry, 
And the first one is, should someone who is overweight be considered unfit for pastoral ministry? And well, and the, the reason given there is they lack self-control, which is one of the qualifications that Titus gives in Titus chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Uh, that in itself does not mean that they have no self-control. Uh, a, we have different body types. B, uh, in the Old Covenant, uh, fat was a sign of, of prosperity. Uh, self-control, and then other people, it's just their body type, other people will be overweight because of, of uh, thyroid problems or whatever. Uh, those are just more comfortable. You know, who, who is the one to decide? Uh, now, we're not talking about obesity, uh, in this, you didn't say obesity, which is then obviously a, a sign of not having self-control, where a person is overweight and you see them eating Twinkies and uh, all kinds of sugar all the time. Um, we've got men like Spurgeon that would be very used of the Lord. He had gout because he was overweight. Mm-hmm. Martin Lloyd-Jones wasn't thin. Uh, so again, the Bible doesn't give us uh, a, a measurement guide. Our doctors will say you got if you're this tall, you should weigh this amount. But the Bible doesn't do that. So that in itself does not mean someone does not have self-control. Very good. It's questions like this that make me glad this is a radio podcast type program and not a television program, Doctor Piper. At least for my own sake. Moving on. You're not overweight. <laughs> Thank you, sir. You're very gracious. <laughs> the second question we got is, what exactly does Scripture mean when it says an elder must be self-controlled? What is the concrete, practical standard we can use? I think when you compare 1 Timothy 3 with the statement in Titus 1, we can find the answer. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, are pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Most of these characteristics that Paul describes here would be aspects of self-control, temperate. So I'm, I'm not addicted to anything. I can use uh, various things to God's glory. I'm not addicted to wine. I may use wine. I may use coffee. I can use tobacco in moderation. Addiction, being mastered by something, is the issue of Mm self-control. Respectable, that I I behave in a way that is honorable in my uh, public uh, and private relationships. Not pugnacious, that I control my temper. I'm gentle, I'm kind, I'm not litigious or... or, uh, uh, involved in disputes, peaceable. So I think that free from the love of money, I think if you look at those things, uh, you can see what self-control means. Amen. <clears throat> and lastly, this listener asks, would it be unwise for a man to pursue or be preparing for pastoral ministry if he has a difficult relationship with his wife? And what he means is that there's a fair degree of friction due to a personality difference or um, just ongoing, slow-moving sanctification. He's not. He specifically pointed out that he's not referencing quote big, obvious sins um, such as uh, adultery or, or things of that nature. But just that there's personal friction between a husband and wife. 
But he does say a fair degree of friction. If there is a good amount of friction in the marriage relationship, then I would, by God's grace, address that before I pursued the ministry. It can be addressed, but both of you need to admit your sin. We're not just talking about personality here. Mm-hmm. Uh, personality differences, we get back to the earlier question. Yes, we need to understand where we're different, but the sin is how we respond to each other, not that we have different personalities. And so let's don't even, you know, let's don't push this under personality, but, you know, really... <clears throat> If a husband loves his wife sacrificially and she loves him and is willing to submit to his headship, uh, there's going to be a a good harmony. Yeah, there'll be arguments and disagreements. Uh, Very few marriages don't have arguments and disagreements. But it's not every day there's tension in the home because of the friction that's there. Amen. I think that brings us up on our time, but this has been a very profitable session of faith and practice, at least for me, and I hope it was for our listeners as well. And um, if, especially coming off of that last question, if you are considering ministry, and specifically if you're considering seminary training to prepare for ministry, please don't hesitate to be in touch with us. My email address here at the seminary is zgroff at gpts.edu. You can find that information at our website. But also, um, we have many opportunities to get to know us more. That being said, you have to do a few things beforehand. And that is pray, discuss these things with your wife, and then also approach your pastors and your elders in your church. You, you can't. You cannot, um, you cannot presume to succeed in pastoral ministry without some kind of testing and affirmation by a local church, by a local session of elders, or if you're a Reformed Baptist, uh, a board of deacons. Um, but um, we would be excited to hear from you. And I just want to thank you all again for listening in to this latest edition of Faith and Practice. And we're looking forward to having you again. Dr. P, you want to say a question? A number of you have uh, commented about missing the podcast. We're not just starting back faith and practice. Uh, uh, Zach will be uh, getting back on the various interviews and book reviews, and we'll be publishing online when these will be available. And so uh, watch for that as we get started back with uh, uh, the podcast as well as the faith and practice. And again, just a hearty thanks to uh, Bill Hill uh, we regret that he couldn't handle his pastoral work and continue to do this. He did it for um, uh, almost three-quarters of a year and did a great job, but we're glad his ministry is prospering as well. I want to echo and second everything that Dr. Piper just said. Bill not only did a great service to the seminary in setting up the podcast, establishing it four years ago, but um, even more than that, being the host week in, week out, that whole time, he had a great tenure here, and I certainly have big shoes to fill. So please keep the podcast in your prayers. We hope to see it continue to grow and to thrive in the months and years to come. And towards that end, keep on the lookout for the next segment of Faith and Practice. Dr. P and I have a lot of catching up to do, so we're hoping to get another session together even later this month. So keep an eye out. Um, You'll see notifications on Twitter and on Facebook and other social media, and be submitting questions. Please, we have plenty of questions to dig through, but we always invite submissions. We're excited to receive those questions. Um, Until next time, God bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you.